In the world of technology, there exists a person who dashingly orchestrates a delightful arrangement of technical events to bring a vendor's tantalizing treats dangling in front of the extreme bloggers and influencers of the world. Today, we corner him into the interview room of the Datanauts Galactic Cruiser to pick his noodle for your amusement. I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. And with me is my co-host, who still builds cardboard box rocket ships in his backyard. That's Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. And you're listening to the Data Knots podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes, in your favorite podcatcher, or at packapushers.net. We actually had this guest on early when we first tried starting this show. It used to be called <laughs> IT Engine Builders. It never, I guess it's kind of funny because it, it did. We <laughs> so, so show trivia. We actually had we were going with like a mechanic, you know, wrench work on your car kind of theme. Only you're working on your IT engine, and we had shirts and everything. And then we just like binned the whole idea. You still have your shirt? I don't know. It's a good question. I went through a decluttering phase, so it might have disappeared. I'm wearing that shirt right now. <laughs> well, well, without any further ado, Stephen Foskett, welcome to the show. Finally, as an official guest, who are you? What is it that you do? I, hello there, Mr. Wall. This is Stephen Foskett. So I sometimes ask myself what it is that I do. Lately, I do a lot <laughs> of uh, finance and HR, but theoretically, I uh, organize Tech Field Day and run Gestalt IT. And and also, if one is a pundit, does one pund? I think that's the right word. I hmm. pund. Hmm. What? <laughs> Although, hearing what, what it, it is that you do now, it, basically, you describe saw a small business owner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess we'll start at the beginning here. I mean, for a long time, I've known you as a as a storage guy, as an expert in the realm of storage. You definitely got me turned on to quite a different technologies in that realm. So tip my hat to you. And I'd like to start there. That's a wide industry. There's There's a lot going on, I suppose. What areas of the storage industry are interesting to you personally these days? Well, I'm really excited about um, what's going on in what's called NVMe storage. I was trying to decide how nerdy jargony I could get, but uh, essentially as nerdy as you want. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. So, so essentially, a PCI Express based storage instead of old, boring fake disk storage like we've been using for the last forty years. So, I'm I'm excited about that stuff. You know, it's it's exciting too to see some of the uh, automated, integrated storage components that are happening. I'm not of the opinion that storage is dead. I think it's uh, it's transforming, transfiguring, kind of like <laughs> yourself, Mr. Wall. I was going to bring that up because I guess for a long time myself, and, and I'm, I guess I'm questioning if you are still focused on the storage arrays that get adopted by an enterprise IT data center and they go live there and they churn up blocks and bytes. I mean, is that still your focus or are you kind of expanding your horizons into different parts of the, I guess, public cloud and whatnot? Yeah, not so much. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's really interesting to see the development that's happened to storage arrays to keep them somewhat relevant. But yeah, the really exciting stuff is going on on the software side and, um, you know, with scalable storage and new protocols and things like that. So software is, is the most interesting stuff. And uh, I've been to a couple of Tech Field Day events where distributed storage was just the most interesting thing going on, at least in my mind. On the whole, just since we're talking about storage here, are spinning disks still a thing, Stephen? Or, or, or maybe a better question is why haven't we moved entirely to flash-based storage? You know, the, the spinning rust still seems to show up now and again. I have a very good answer for that. And the, and the answer is yes, absolutely, spinning disks are still a thing. And the answer is we literally don't have enough silicon production on the planet to replace all the hard drives in the world. 
and especially not all the tapes. You know, I mean, there's so much capacity on disc and tape that it just is not possible to replace it all with flash. Full stop. Wow. Now that's that's a pretty good reason. <laughs> we could try, but then you'd have no more CPUs and no more RAM. And even then, you couldn't make that kind of volume. But you know, the thing is, the capacities are are going up so fast. Um, you know, the density of, of flash storage is going up. You know, new technologies from you know Samsung and Intel and Micron and everybody. Um, eventually, we we will get there so that the capacity won't be the question. Then it's going to be more the cost. That that's interesting. In that it occurs to me that when you hear about a new fab uh, facility being stood up, it's really big news because it's a multi billion dollar investment typically to stand up that plant. Yeah, it's it's like starting a new company. You know, so if you do, if you hear, you know, oh, you know, Texas Micros, you know, TSMC is is you know launching a new fab. Don't think of that as like oh whoop de doo. It's like a, a building or a factory or something. Think of it as a new startup company that's going to do new things and they're going to have products and they're going to decide, you know, which products to focus on and based on, you know, profitability and customer demand and all that sort of thing. And, and all these things that we use, like everything we use from CPUs to GPUs and memory and all that, and, and even storage, all that stuff could be built in that fab. Just like, you know, if, if somebody launched a new startup company, they could be building stuff uh, you know, whatever they want, but they're going to look at the market and they're going to say what's profitable and what's has a big future and what should I be investing in? And and that drives what they choose to build. Well, let's switch topics just a bit, because one thing that I like about your blog is that you're very transparent about how you feel about different protocols and file systems and whatnot, specifically ZFS. And you have some interesting comments there around it's the best file system, but then for now, dot, 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 you know, in parentheses, and then you also write about what you're doing with your ZFS system. So put put simply, what is it that you like so much about ZFS? Well, that actually goes to the one of the, the, the fundamental issues with storage, in my opinion, is well, it, storage has one job. And that is that if you put your stuff into it, you should get your stuff out of it when you request it. And it should be the same, right? I mean, if, if a storage system can't do that, then it doesn't matter what else it can do. The thing that I like about ZFS for home users, especially, is that it's one of the only widely available, affordable, implementable storage solutions that guarantees that what you put in is what you're going to get back out because it does checksums and it has, you know, built in, you know, redundancy features and all these sort of things. And so that's why I say it really is the best. I'm not sure if folks have noticed it, but, you know, file systems like, you know, HFS plus on the Mac or even the new APFS that the Mac is using now, Windows, you know, NTFS and the new REFS, none of these actually have data checksums. And so you can get bit, bit rot on your drive and you wouldn't know it. And over time, your data is going to be corrupted. And that's just that. Can you go into that a bit? You know, bit rot. I hear that a lot for those maybe not as familiar with the term. You know, can you explain that? Sure. It's, you know, essentially um, people think of hard drives as, uh, you know, kind of... <laughs> Boy, this is going to sound horrible. Kind of like punch <laughs> uh, punch cards, you know, essentially, you know, there's a hole there or there's not. Like there's a one there or there's not. But that's totally not how hard drives work. It's much more analog than that. And um, it's one of those things where, especially as density increases, there's a lot more like probabilistic stuff going in there where it, where it, it probably, you know, it mostly wrote a one there. And we hope that it, we're going to get a one when we read it again, but it could have been disturbed or... And, and there's all sorts of different levels of error checking and error correction along the way to basically say, oops, 
I read the wrong thing. But it all comes down to the fact that this media is not as reliable as we think it is. And it's very much the same for flash memory as well. Uh, most modern, what they call multi-level cell flash technology is the same thing. It's not even, you, you, it's not even on or off. It's kind of like bright, less bright, dim, <laughs> and off. And, and so you've got to decide, well, is that dim or is that less bright? I'm not sure. And it's the same with hard drives. And so, you know, you need level upon level upon level of error correction because the file system and the applications you use, they just assume that whatever data they read is correct, no matter what. And that's just not a valid assumption. Everything I've been told is a lie. I thought there was just zeros and ones, not brights and dims. Alas. <laughs> All right. Well, the other thing that I wanted to bring up was around the field day events that you do. Just a quick preamble. These are awesome. You have to go to techfieldday.com and check these out. I've been a delegate in some. I've sponsored some, but they're technical goodness. But I'm deviating from the question here. So you have a lot of these field day events. And in them, there are many new storage vendors that come into the world that are focused on different ways to do data efficiency, deduplication, and store the data in a very you know cost versus speed type of consideration issue. That leads me to think more of Jevons Paradox, which is really just as we make more resources available, people will then want those resources. Is this still a focus? Are we ever fast enough to satisfy needs? Can we just say like, cool, <laughs> we've got a bajillion IOPS, we're done. It just feels like it feels like we're 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 reaching for the moon and eventually there'll be enough. But but I don't know. You know? I, I'm suspicious that there won't. I mean, just ask myself. Ask here. Ask yourself. Is your computer fast enough? Um. Well, it's a Never. Windows machine, so it's a, a high performant, well fueled, highly tuned. <laughs> I mean, no, no, just to be honest, no, it's never, it's never fast enough. And in fact, it feels yeah. like the, the, the more versions like of it that come slow. out, the slower it gets. Yeah, absolutely. It's a million times faster than the computer you used, you know, 10, 20 years ago. And yet it feels a million times slower. And, you know, it's the same with storage. It's the same with storage capacity. We've all been living. I didn't know there was a name for it. I really appreciate you telling me that. That's word. Uh, that's awesome. Javon. Javon in, in Francais, Javon's Paradox. But, Javon. And I have horrible accent. But yeah, Javon's Paradox, Google it. It's good stuff. Absolutely. And and I used to actually talk about that. And when I was doing like uh, seminars where I would, you know, go out and talk to storage admins about managing storage, we would actually talk about like reverse thin provisioning. You know, so thin provisioning basically says lie about how much space you've got. Like, you know, oh yeah, sure, buddy, you got a terabyte here, no problem. But you don't. You're just you just have whatever it is that you're using problem with that is that it makes it like accelerates this this paradox that you speak of so i used to always laugh that it would be better to uh to lie to users and just say oh no you've only got 100 megs left sorry buddy you're never <laughs> going to be able to write that because then at least maybe they wouldn't write something else because the problem is that yeah they fill it up all the time and they're going to fill it up all the time there's never going to be enough storage oh yeah and i i feel an army of virtualization engineers out there that understand exactly the pain you're talking about it's like, oh, this this Windows virtual machine that I have, it has 100 gigs of space. Like, well, no, it's it's thin. Don't <laughs> don't actually use that, please. You know, so it's this whole shell game of storage. Yep. Are there any specific advancements out there that are like, wow, this is worth digging deeper? Maybe it's something practical, or or is it really just the world ended with Sun Microsystems ZFS? <laughs> <laughs> oh, alas, no. Yeah, I'm 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 uh, I'm glad to say that there's actually some some new exciting stuff. You just made me like bonk my head on the on the desk. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, no, ZFS is hopelessly out of date and, um, it's the best thing we have kind of like the combustion internal combustion engine is the best thing we have. You know what I mean? It's like, yes, that's great, but, uh, really, um, 
Yeah, the problem is that like so, so much storage technology is just so backward looking. And so you've got file systems that look like the file systems that were in use in the 70s and 80s. And then you've got block storage that looks just like fake disks from the 70s or 80s. I mean, the protocols that, you know, you, you buy a hard drive, that protocol is basically a super fancy, advanced, virtual, fake version of the protocol that was, you know, introduced in 88. You know what I mean? And it's the same, you know, on VMware, you know, oh yeah, you know, we can do NAS or we can do SAN. Yeah, but that's just another fake disk drive. And so that's why I'm excited more about these new technologies that really kind of take storage in a whole new direction. I mean, think about like, think about like iCloud on your phone or if you're in the Apple world, you know, that's actually a storage system. Your iCloud photos, that's a storage protocol. It's a storage solution. And it doesn't look anything like what you think of when you think of storage. And that's exciting. Hmm. Another new technology related to NVMe. Now, to, to set this up, we did a show with Jay Metz from Cisco a while ago talking about some of the guts of how NVMe works. And part of that was the, the, the bus width, how you queue commands up, and you really can get a lot more throughput out of an NVMe drive because of those structures that are very different from SAS and other um, legacy oh, yeah. ways, if you will, of, uh, of handling those commands. Intel has announced volume management device, VMD. And uh, to quote a blog from VMware, they describe it this way. Instead of each NVMe device being discoverable on the PCIe bus, VMD instantiates one or more I.O. controller-like devices and puts the NVMe devices behind them in much the same way SAS I.O. controllers did. So, Stephen, I wonder if you had an opinion about Intel VMD. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? Or what what advantages does uh, VMD give us? Well, I like the idea of VMD. Um, It's too early to say whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. The good thing about technologies like this, and and I should note that there are other, a lot of storage companies, this is the big way that storage companies are advancing storage is by figuring out how to either how to do like cloud driven application storage, like my iCloud example, or how to do, you know, high performance PCIe NVMe storage, like VMD that you mentioned. These things are you know, incredibly important because what, what essentially you're doing is you're, you're blowing away all that fake nonsense about drives and cylinders and heads and all this kind of stuff. And you're saying, no, you know, let me talk to an intelligent controller at a high rate of speed. So I love these ideas. Um, you know, I love the ideas of companies like E8 Storage and Accelero who are also doing, you know, PCIe based storage and, uh, you know, there's others, you know, Diamante and Liquid um, are doing, you know, basically PCIe bus sharing and all this kind of exciting stuff. Even Dell, you know, you look at the cool stuff that they're working on with, uh, you know, sharing PCIe with with different server blades and everything. It's that's that's where the excitement and the and the energy and the newness is. So, yeah, so Intel's got something cool. You know, let's go with it. Intel has had a tremendous positive impact on storage over the last four or five years. And hopefully this will help drive it forward. Yeah, I remember, I remember being in a number of those different Intel events and just kind of just having my brain melted and, and scooping up the pieces and like, <laughs> what did I just learn? <laughs> I don't think of Intel as a storage company, but, you know, they are one of the top storage companies. And as Intel does, I mean, it's kind of like Intel with networking. Like they see that driving storage performance forward and driving storage technology forward will sell more CPUs, <laughs> though, I guess Spectre will sell a lot of CPUs too. Um, (laughs) But, uh, you know, they see this as an opportunity and they're actually investing tremendously in it. And they have so much power in the industry that they're able to push stuff like this forward. 
So Stephen, kind of final thought on storage, and, and we mentioned cloud a little bit earlier, but Avira Systems, which got bought by Microsoft, which is very nostalgic for me. I wrote a post about them from a field day that I attended back in 2013, which I was like, whoa, pour a little liquor out for that. It got acquired by Microsoft. Obviously, this putting things into the cloud idea is a big deal. Can you give us like a high-level overview of what they're doing, pushing data to the edge, what you would potentially call this? You know, I, I came up with core edge caching, just-in-time data. I don't know. And, and why is this such a big deal? Well, it's a big deal because, you know, latency is the the performance killer in storage. And anything you can do to attack the problem of of waiting for your storage is a good thing. So that's number one. Number two, Microsoft has really needed to have a more enterprise storage product, especially in Azure. And uh, they have been working with NetApp. A lot of folks don't know that they've been working with NetApp to bring like the NetApp on tap operating system into Azure. Now with Avir, they've got another owned in-house enterprise storage solution because that's what their customers want. You know, if you're going to move enterprise applications into Azure, you've got an enterprise operating system, but you need enterprise storage too. point Stephen made that I didn't see coming and yet is also obvious when he said it was the issue of fab capacity that we discussed where the world hasn't been taken over by flash because we can only make so much. There's only so many facilities in the world that are cranking out uh, chips of different kinds. And so if you can only make so much, then you end up with a home in the world for spinning rust still. So that was that was really interesting and, uh, and thought provoking. Mr. Wall, what stuck out to you? Very similar. You know, actually, the, the silicon shortfall that we would experience, we tried to, I put SSD all the things in my notes, reminds me of the gasoline shortage concerns or just concerns around, hey, we need hybrid cars, electric vehicles, and, and other power sources to, to do what we're used to doing. But I think there's an answer there, but the answer isn't just bullishly using the same methods we know today. Oh, Stephen, more storage. This is what you're all about. Rook was uh, recently advanced to the inception stage with a lofty goal of tackling, quote, distributed storage systems running in cloud-native environments, which is how they describe themselves. So storage comes up a lot as a challenge. We talk about ephemeral, stateless containers, something that's come up on this show a lot, and the need to store things. So would we argue that state should be stored in a non-container database somewhere else and then make distributed storage kind of a non-issue, which I've, I've seen some some storage solutions that are that way related to containers. Or do you think this is a this is an issue of a deeper need for distributed storage beyond data repositories? Kind of a kind of a big architectural question here. Yeah, and I, I think that this actually reflects the nature of uh, you know containerization and the fact that you know storage is an area that well, it was kind of taken for granted at first with initial container implementations. Uh, you know, I'm pointing at Docker. Um, you know, the idea was, okay, well, storage, you know, that'll just sort of take care of itself. It obviously doesn't take care of itself. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so essentially what we've got is, you know, people realizing that we need to, I don't want to say containerize storage because that's not the right word. We need to change storage to make it more applicable to use in a distributed non-server world. Well, I, I think I think the way containers were originally conceived versus how they are used now or how some people want to use them has changed too. So it's kind of moved the ball for what you know what we could get away with for storage and containers early on 
is different now that we're looking at containers that maintain state and hang around for a longer time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, you know, I think the idea is a hundred percent valid and this has been a big issue with the implementation of, of, you know, containers, especially from the enterprise that, yeah, you need, you need to maintain state. Hello. You know, you can't just, you know, assume that, that because, because state is really just storage. If you think about it, I mean, what does state mean? It really just means storage. And so, you know, you need to have some sort of external state system and, and it can't just be some files, you know, you need it, you need file storage, sure, but you really also need object storage and especially data storage, database storage, so that you can do things like have a key value store and automatically configure containers as they come up and point them at the right inputs and the right outputs and so on. So this is exactly what I meant in the last section when we were talking about, am I happy with with storage? No, <laughs> no, <laughs> you know, we need stuff like this. And, and this is this is the right direction. And, you know, Rook is 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 a great project because I think it's it's attacking what containers need for storage, not what storage happened to do for containers. Yeah, less of a, hey, here's some storage we already know. Let's just cram it into yep. the Docker environment and, you know, really exactly. duct tape the hell out oh, of it. You know, volume. Good, good, good for you. Now we got that storage <laughs> thing solved. Well, uh, switching gears just a bit kind of adjacent to the whole idea of Docker is uh, Kubernetes. And a friend of mine, Rob Hirschfeld, wrote a great post on the new stack called Seven Ways Kubernetes Avoids an OpenStack-like Hype Cycle, which, man, that couldn't be closer to home. I went to all the OpenStack summits in, in Austin and whatnot, and it was very hypey. He had one thing that he talked about that I wanted to kind of expand on and get your thoughts on was a focus on applications and not infrastructure, which immediately was like a C-sharp chord in my soul. Like, wait, infrastructure is important, too. Uh, so my, my, my question is, is this a, a new era sort of thing where we just ignore the turtles or, or do we acknowledge that the turtles really do go all the way down? Because in my opinion, in essence, there, there's always someone that has to worry about the hardware somewhere, maybe just not you specifically, whoever's reading it. Are you, did you just say the cloud is just someone else's computer? No, I, 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 all I really said was there's turtles all the way down. You got you to <laughs> respect the turtles, man. Yes. Well, the cloud really is just someone else's computer. And that's, you know, that's something, um, you know, man, I'm going to sound like a broken record. That's something that I always heard when I would talk about like virtual storage and cloud storage and everybody. Some, some guy in the back of the room would like raise it. I think it was Ethan that would do that. Raise his hand in the back of the room and say, yeah, but there's a disk drive somewhere, isn't there? You know? Yeah. Mm. That is a disk drive. Yeah, there's hardware. Yeah, there's infrastructure. Of course there is. But the whole point is that, you know, why are we orienting, why are we developing applications based on our infrastructure instead of developing infrastructure based on our applications? Why are, you know, it's like, it's like we're doing things backwards. And That's so I'm excited about what, like, not, not what people are doing with containers as much as what they're doing with like functions as a service. If you look at the OpenFAS project, for example, that my buddy Alex Ellis is doing, it's exciting that stuff is really cool. <laughs> True. I, I, and I, my thought was maybe that the army of people that we need to focus on the infrastructure is shrinking. And that a lot of that may be abstracted from the OEMs that are building quote unquote smarter infrastructure, but it, it will always, maybe I'm forever crusty. And the thought of like not focusing on that at all will always kind of sour my thoughts on anything that, that kind of makes that bold statement. Yeah. And uh, well, truthfully, obviously there is uh, infrastructure there. And, and I, I do agree as well that I think infrastructure is what killed OpenStack because it just got so balled up in kind of the nuts and bolts of how are we going to do this? 
I hate to say killed OpenStack. It's not like it's dead or something. It's not dead. <laughs> Kubernetes is going to run on OpenStack. The king uh, is dead. Long live the king, yeah. you know? <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, it, it killed the excitement out of it because, you know, people started saying, okay, well, we got to figure out how to do this stuff, you know? I think that the idea here is that, you know, you're trying to basically, you know, on the DevOps thing, right? You're, you're trying to, to, to kind of come at it from the dev side, not from the ops side. Yeah. And, and the other thought that I had on that was, uh, or at least leading into a different question was that there's, there's a lot of options to handle the abstraction at the management layer. Talking about OpenStack, that I think the biggest challenge people had was just getting the thing running. Uh, but now you've got all these different container services and Kubernetes makes that easier, like Amazon as mm-hmm. EKS, which is the elastic container service. The K is a, a subtle nod to Kubernetes, obviously. Uh, Fargate, Red Hat as the OpenShift container platform. Microsoft has the other ACI, the Azure Container Instances. So, so in a nutshell, I suppose the question is, do you think that's going to alleviate some of the pressure on the infrastructure part of the equation where we just sort of offload to public cloud and say, not my problem, or, or in the Red Hat's case, you know, a, a partner and say, not my problem. You're, you're handling all this. You're containering all the things. Not a big deal. I'll just hire SREs or focus on SRE skills. That seems to be the the idea, but uh, I, you know, not to sound too much like a chicken here, but um, I'm concerned uh, that if you don't worry about infrastructure, if you do just hand it off to a partner and say, okay, make it work, that could be problems too. You know, I mean, we've got to make sure that we are, uh, you know, that, that companies are, are, if you're doing production applications, that, that you've got something that's appropriate underneath i do worry that that this is an example of the pendulum swinging way too far over yeah on the dev side of the equation but on the other hand i'm not going to argue with automating infrastructure and and having integrated automated infrastructure that that just sort of works and grows as needed and so on i mean elastic compute is a really great name for that thing even though it wasn't a great name for the particular product offering that they were doing that's fair. And I think when you read Kelsey Hightower had a really cool kind of interview style blog on a cloud guru uh, where the, the title of it was, you need SRE skills to thrive in a serverless world. And I was like, wow, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, we've got, a, we've got pretty heavy buzzwordy stuff, but you read through it and it's like, okay, the thought is more around how we're questioning the architecture, how we're looking to build things, obviously sprinkle some DevOps on that in terms of how we build the culture and align people to building all this. So it's not just infrastructure versus developer. Although the one comment that I had was it, it seemed really heavy on people that code and people that are developers. And there was literally no mention of people that do ops. And, and, and that's where I'm kind of aligned with you, Stephen. It, it feels like a very heavily pendulum sling back to, you know, like when we go from client server to mainframe, like we've seen these swings, we know the signs of these things. I can't put my finger on it, but it does kind of make me a little queasy. Absolutely. And that's the history of computing right there is, is these, these reactions, you know, oh, this is bad. So I'm going to go totally the other direction. And uh, eventually we'll hopefully settle somewhere in the middle. Now, in recent months, Stephen, uh, Spectre and Meltdown, um, major CPU, well, what would you call them? A bug? Vulnerability? Both? I mean, the way I heard it described was uh, because the CPU spends most of its time doing nothing, it, it does a bunch of predictive forks that pre-compute what you might be asking, and then you can actually go after that data and uh, and use it for malicious purposes. Roughly how I understood the problem. What, do you have any comments on Spectre and Meltdown? Well, you know, I mean, overall, like, you know, like I, I wouldn't call it a bug. I'd say it's a vulnerability, sure. And the main thing, the, the, the main reason it's a vulnerability is because it would be so easy to exploit, and that just 
wow, it's incredible to me to think that this, that nobody thought of doing this. And then like four different groups thought of doing this all at the same time and did it. Oh my God. But you know, the, the problem wasn't the speculative ex- ex- execution. It's just that nobody thought that you could actually exfiltrate data out of speculative execution until they figured it out. And once they figured it out, well, now we're in trouble. Um, I was going to use a harsher, harsher word. But this is a family show. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, the, the, I love that the Cloudflare blog post, they wrote about it, um, you know, with the two roads diverged in a, in a wood and all that kind of stuff. Totally cool explanation. And I explained it in, in my family, um, you know, the, the whole data exfiltration thing. I, I, my daughter was talking to me and I said, okay, like imagine like I had the lights on in the, in the kitchen and then I turned them off and walked away. And then you came in and somebody said, well, was, was dad here? And I said, how could you tell if I was here? And she said, well, I could just touch the light bulb and see if it's still warm. And I said, exactly. And that's hmm. how Spectra works. You know, Ethan, my thought is that the guidance offered by We'll just say the site reliability engineering, SRE, as well as the serverless folks, I think they're actually really good guidelines on how to move forward in creating what I'll term superior architecture. Right? There's, a, there's a lot of good ideas there. The theory, I think, is sound. But I will kind of caution, I suppose, that it's important to not lose sight of the fact that infrastructure and ops, they still exist. And frankly, they need to be addressed. You can never fully, there's always a turtle below something somewhere. You, you have to address that in some part of your architecture. What's on your mind? I'm going to go orthogonal a little bit. So th- this popped in my head that the evolution of infrastructure is it's incredibly fast right now, rapid iteration on different architectures. And we've covered a lot of them on the show. And, and so there's an issue with a with creation of a new technology to solve specific problems. And we're, we're seeing that some, something new pops up. Well, why did you make this to solve this problem? But then people start using that new technology in an unexpected way, which drives the need for yet more change and more evolution. So, so stateful containers, for example, the people that built containers initially were like, state? No, that stateless. Duh. What, what are you missing here? But then, you know, most of the world revolves around a, a, a stateful kind of an architecture. And so there's all this evolution that is built around these sorts of changes. I don't think this rapid iteration, rapid evolution model changes going forward. And I I think it's leading us to a a fractured IT rather than like the one standard reference model of how you build an organization, how you build an application delivery system that we can bank on. There's no one right answer anymore. And it's heavily dependent on your business and your business needs. Stephen, I want to shift into career advice because I'm presuming that you got some insight here because you talked to so many different companies in your gig as a tech field day chief cat herder wrangler, however you want to describe yourself. And and those are a lot of different kind of companies, both consumers, people that are consuming technology, and then people that are making technology. So and the Packet Pushers Network, we get a lot of emails from people who are college grads or they're you know, a year or two into their IT career and they're trying to figure out what the future is. Where should they go? So, so question one here, could you highlight some skills that you are hearing are in strong demand today? Oh, sure. Um, this is not an, a, a theoretical question for me. My son is a freshman at Northeastern studying computer science uh, in mm-hmm. Boston. So um, we had this discussion recently. And they have, you know, offerings in computer security. They have a a big data analytics kind of uh, focus, Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning, all these things. I mean, it sounds like buzzwords, 
but they're not buzzwords. You know what I mean? If you can, if you can get in front of things like that, it's, you know, super valuable. You know, I'm, I've never been a big proponent of people studying MIS or managing, you know, IT kind of things. I mean, my degree is not in that, you know, if you want to, if you want to be an IT guy, um, I think it's a more practical skill than the kind of thing that you're going to go to college for. And so I guess it depends. Are you on the developer side or are you on the operator side? Well, and is there even a right answer to that question? Because I think a lot of the folks that ask that question, they're trying to map out a career path. It's, I mean, it's one thing to answer the question for the next like two or three years. It's another to be, you know, what is the roadmap for my career in IT look like at a time when so much is changing in IT? It's, it doesn't even feel like you're on firm enough ground to make that sort of a prediction. Well, okay. So let me ask a real practical question related to that. What a lot of us used to do was we climbed the certification ladder. We jump on the Microsoft cert ladder or way back in the day, Novell or uh, Cisco more recently, uh, VMware. Uh, jumping on those cert ladders and, and uh, those valid ways to build a career path anymore? I don't know about a career path, but it's a great way to get a job. Um, I, you know, <laughs> my opinion on certifications is a certification is basically like a fantastic resume. You know, if you can walk in there and say, I've got a CCIE. Well, then they're not going to have a lot of the questions they might have normally had. Yeah. So I'd say yes, in terms of, you know, certifications are a great way to kind of get your foot in the door. Um, know that all, not all certifications are the same. Unfortunately, again, I've, I've experienced this myself seeing the college and even the high school kids. I don't want to say be duped into it, but there's a lot of like real low level worthless certifications that people are are pushing on these kids. Um, you know, make sure that what you're getting is is actually a valid certification. Here's a clue. If it's not difficult, it's not worth it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, that's very true. Yeah, if it's not difficult, you may glean some useful information out of it. Right. But uh, like like certified ethical hacker. I did that for fun a few years back. It wasn't hard. The test wasn't hard. The material didn't go that deep. Did I get nothing out of it? Nah, you know, there was some useful information in there that kind of got you oriented. But it really, it was a setup for more meaningful certifications that would have been much more difficult to obtain. So it's not that there's no value, but don't expect an employer to get all excited because you're whatever the easy certification was that you've got. Right on. But, you know, if, if you do have a certification, that's a good way to get in the door. I'd say the best, um, my best advice for a career path would be to do it. There's no excuse anymore. You know, when I was in, in college, uh, you know, dating myself a little bit, when I was in college, there was no, you couldn't have Unix at home because there was no open Unix operating system, open source Unix operating system. Are you kidding me? You know, anyone can afford a, a Raspberry Pi. And, I, and I, I, I'm not trying to be first world centric here. I really believe that almost anyone on earth could afford a Raspberry Pi with Unix. And, you know, it, it's a challenge to get connectivity, of course, and power and a screen and stuff. But, you know, these things are coming down and becoming more accessible. The best thing you can do is do, you know what I mean? Get involved, you know, and that's going to serve you in terms of your career better than any certification or college program would. I love the mentions from Ethan on Novell and you with punch cards. You know, it's definitely, I'm feeling the nostalgia here. Although I will admit some of those things, I, but like the Novell, yeah, definitely the punch cards. I, I have a couple as like, you know, mementos, I never but cards. yeah. <laughs> Talk to Howard <laughs> Marks. <laughs> true, true. He, he definitely, his, his repository of knowledge in his noodle is quite, uh, quite respectable. 
Uh, so, so one thing we've talked about on different shows and, and actually it sparked some controversy, which I think is kind of awesome, was around the technology consumption shift. And this is the idea where companies will build their own solutions based on open source and white box and kind of whatever's on the shelf. They'll just cobble it all together. And then rather than investing in those vendor relationships like traditional enterprise would, they instead invest in the people that are required to build and maintain those in-house solutions rather than kind of outsourcing it, if you will, to other vendors. Uh, Steven, is this something you see happening? Do you have any evidence of this happening? Uh, or is this smoke and mirrors? Smoke and mirrors. Oh, snap. <laughs> <laughs> We're done. Nope. No, I, I just can't. I, I can't believe it. If there's one thing that I've learned working for, you know, big companies over the years, they really like support contracts. They really like you know, turnkey solutions, and they really like calling somebody for help. I I just don't see it happening. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, and that and a lot of the pushback we got on that show, and we're talking about show one eighteen that we did with Peyton Maynard Coran, are people just saying, "Yeah, who's going to invest when they can do turnkey? Why invest in people?" And uh, you know, and Peyton's mission in the world, and, and why he's so interesting to talk to is just his perspective that. Well, if you invest in the people internally and build your own solution, you can end up with something way better than what a vendor will give you. It's just a very different way to think about the problem. And that's totally true. I just don't see companies doing it. Hmm. Well, I also I mean, see it come up with, when you talk about lock-in as well. People, I, I saw a good thing on Twitter. It was like, you know, when you build your own, you're just locked into you, but then you're the only customer as well. So then there's not even – you're not even kind of spreading the load amongst other customers that are fueling this thing. It's literally just you. So there's always lock-in as well. Yeah. And it makes sense for, for certain big customers. So, I mean, yeah, the, 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 you know, if you're Facebook or LinkedIn or, you know, Apple or whatever, it, it totally go nuts, you know, Google. Um, the problem is you're not Facebook. You know, I guarantee that probably the majority of the listeners to this are not Facebook and they're just not going to be able to pull that off. But if you're listening, you work at Facebook, we love you too. <laughs> <laughs> well, Stephen, one trend that we know is happening is that enterprise IT spends some of that money is shifting to cloud versus building internal infrastructure. So, okay, if you think about the implications for VARs and MSPs in that space who maybe would have made a lot of money um, helping you stand up that solution in-house – uh, are VARs and MSPs kind of hurting? Are they going to keep hiring engineering staff if I'm a you know, career-minded person and think maybe I make a living there uh, working for a reseller? Is cloud changing the equation where maybe that's not going to happen? That's not much of a career path for me anymore? No, I think, that's, I think again, I, I feel like enterprises are still going to be uh, wanting to work with VARs. You know, the, the VAR value proposition has been, you know, somewhat questionable for a long time. But um, I'd say overall they're providing it you know, a decent value for their customers and especially in helping their customers navigate this. I think that's the the biggest value that they're providing is basically being able to, to answer customers' questions. And they're still going to be needed. In fact, maybe they'll be needed even more because maybe their customers are going to have no idea what some of this stuff is and they'll need somebody who can come and, and discuss it with them. The best bars that I know are the ones who do that. They answer people's questions, not, you know, here, let me install that for you. Where it's not just about, um, you know, services that get added to a big metal buy. Now it's, well, and, and as you say, Stephen, it always has been, you know, the, that consult consultation service, the wisdom that uh, you bring because you've got technical knowledge. And so maybe the question isn't which storage array should I buy or which server vendor should I pair up with? It's which cloud gives me the most bang for the buck for this kind of an application that I want to host. And exactly. uh, yeah, and you, you just end up shifting your wisdom into a new knowledge domain. 
Exactly. And that's, that's where I think, you know, companies can really see a benefit still from uh, even, even now from, you know, working with VARs and so on. And there, and there's companies in that space too. I was talking to a company uh, just the other day, uh, Cloud Genera, that was talking about how to compare different, uh, you know, different cloud solutions and, and, and there's still a market there. Yeah. Yes. I think that the, the main value there is the exposure, all the different environments, and it's hard to put a price on wisdom and experience. You know, that's, that's really what you're trying to bring in is what are other people doing? What has been successful and, and how can I be successful versus, you know, I don't want to read the manual, install my storage array for me. You know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Well, it's a switching gears just a little bit, or I guess kind of an adjacent question would be the independent contractor. You know, I want to go down that route. I want to work for myself. Uh, within the current IT landscape, is there still a gap that the independent consultant or contractor could fill instead of, you know, becoming another faceless number behind a massive corporation that steals and blackens your soul? Yeah, um, absolutely. In fact, I think we're getting to the point now where independence is becoming even more attractive than ever. Think about it this way. If companies are going to try to implement strange, exotic things like (laughs) OpenStack, you know, the chances that they'll be able to either train in-house staff or hire, you know, quote, captive staff who really focuses on this stuff, it becomes much more challenging for them to do that. I think there's huge opportunity out there for people who really know, you know, Kubernetes to sell their time, kind of timeshare themselves among (laughs) different companies. You know, basically, if you can get really deep and really know something, you know, there's a huge opportunity there. But speaking as someone who has been an independent and now runs a small business, it's also very, very challenging because the whole running the business side of the thing is well, maybe not what everyone's cut out for. Oh, baby, you're not kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's a whole other show. Yeah, when you want to have that show, we'll have that show. Yeah. Well, okay, Stephen, I think we've covered a lot of storage and you're weird love for ZFS, <laughs> cloudy <laughs> things, career advice, et cetera. want to thank you very much for being on the show. And we're really happy to have your thoughts shared with the audience. Uh, before we leave, though, do you have any other places or things coming up that you want to promote to the audience or places they can find you on the interwebs? Sure. Well, you can find me on Twitter, of course, at S Foskett. I'm a believer in the Twitters. And uh, I'd also recommend, um, you know, if you enjoyed some of the discussion here, um, you'll see me at Cloud Field Day. We're doing Cloud Field Day in April, the 4th through the 6th. It's live streamed on the internet. Just go to techfieldday.com, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday that week, and you will see presentations from a bunch of amazing cloud companies. You'll also see me trying to make jokes at the beginning and the end and trying to stay out of, the, out of sight the rest of the time, along with much smarter people than me sitting around the table talking about uh, cloud stuff. And then, of course, we've got Storage Field Day. And then the other thing that I really want to mention is I've also got my own podcast, Ra Ra, which is the on-premise IT roundtable podcast, and I'm using on-premise correctly because each show has a central thought or premise that we focus on. So if you're interested in that, just check out gestaltit.com or look for on-premise IT. I have given it a listen. At first, I had an eyeball twitch, and then I realized the joke. So, haha, you you got that on me. <laughs> it's uh, a dumb joke. It's actually a really bad joke. I shouldn't have made it, but we did. We did. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, that's it for today's edition of the Data Dots Podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me. I'm at Chris Wall on Twitter, or my blog is wallnetwork.com. And my delightful friend Ethan is at ECBanks on Twitter and blogging at packetpushers.net. 
For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. You'll find the Data Not's talking about containers, certifications, conferences, storage, PowerShell, you name it, we got it. Until then, may your server lights blink, your rotational drives spin, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.